Go ahead and turn to Genesis 1. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 is what we're going to be covering today. Go ahead and turn a couple pages. If you've turned more than a couple pages, go back a couple pages. You'll find it right there. We'll begin with some prayer. Heavenly Father, it is uh, humbling to again come before You and come under Your Word, God, and under Your instruction. And we know that You have created all these things and they were good and they were good and they were good. Uh, And then we see the wretchedness of our own hearts and our own sin that continually holds us under guilt and, and draws us to further temptation. But God, we... We ask that the redeeming love of Your Son, this glorious balm, will be applied to our hearts in this time as we come to Your Word. Amen. Epithet. Epithet. That that little name that's added on to the end of someone else's name or before their name to help describe them. It's not just Ivan, it's Ivan the Terrible. He truly was, he killed his own son, the only rightful heir to the throne, threw his country into chaos when he died. Ivan the Terrible. Gotz, the Iron Hand, of course, a German mercenary, believe it or not. The Beloved Ones, Richard the Lionheart. There's also Piero the Unfortunate, who was a, a ruler don't laugh. I mean, that's his name, right? He was, a, he was a ruler in Florence in the the 15th century, and he broke a treaty with France and uh, Naples. Or he broke a treaty with France, sided with Naples, and then, of course, within a couple of years, the French come and invade him, and uh, and he's thrown out of his his little thiefdom, his little kingdom there. And within several years, he drowns in a river, fleeing from battle. Pedro, the unfortunate. And there's also Wilfred, the hairy who is recorded as no being hairy in places, not normally so in men. <laughs> Fruella, the leprous, bloody Mary. But then there's one that stands out. Alexander the Great, who truly was great, undefeated. In every battle, not just wars, but in every battle, he was undefeated. He was a brilliant, a tactical genius, and and unparalleled in his statesmanship as well. Not just a good general, but his, his being a statesman and working with these other nations that he's conquered to endear them to himself is, is unbelievable when you read about his life. And what's amazing about this is that going into battle... He wouldn't lay his whole game plan out before his generals and before his commanders because he was so fluid and he would have to react to, let's say, King Darius, the, the Persian king, how what he was doing, uh, Alexander the Great would have to react. And so the battle itself was quite fluid. So he would tell his commanders, you're on the cavalry over here, I'm going to be on the cavalry over here in the infantry and all of that. And he would tell them their little roles But they had no idea of the grand scheme of what's going on. But they knew their little part and they were faithful in that. To whatever commands they were given in before the battle and throughout the battle. And then, 
after the inevitable defeat of their enemies, he would bring all of his commanders together and he would reveal it all to them. This, this theme that he was going for, that was throughout the whole battle, how every, every movement, every step, every swing of the sword, how it was all unified for the glory of their king and his kingdom. And oftentimes our approach to the Bible is that of the obedient commander. We do all that we can but we, we just know our little part of the Bible and, we, and that we stay right there. But we don't have the whole picture before us. So for the next season here at Redemption, we're going to be taking a step back and just seeing all of the different movements of the Bible and how they're all interacting together. And you will see again and again and again how everything, how this whole story is being united in Christ. How everything, in it, from its origination, its purpose, its meaning, and its fulfillment is all in Christ. So, what's this going to look like? Lord willing, we're going to be going over the whole Bible in massive chunks. Uh, and we're going to be seeing this again, how this points to Christ. So the trade-off is that we're not going to be able to... Um, Look at every detail that we want to look at. As we're going through the whole Bible, we're going to be going mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. We're not going to be able to go down in the valleys and look at the streams, walk through the woods and cover every little rock that's there. As we're stepping back and seeing this, this whole thing. So the, the trade-off is that we aren't going to be able to see all the facts of the Bible, but I present to you that we're going to get something much more than these facts that we can be found within the Bible. We're going to be able to see the whole story of the Bible. So why is this valuable? Well, when we see this story of the Bible, and from this framework then, and we see how the whole story of the Bible, from Genesis to all the way to Revelation, is pointing to Christ. When we have this framework in which we're able to see the story of God, hopefully through repetition, repetition and pleading and coming before God, we're able to then see how we read our own story. And how this too should be pointing to Christ. So what's the purpose of being a wife and staying home with all of these kids? When it seems this monotonous struggle day after day after day. When the days are long and the years are short. You're pouring your life into the children just to send them off. And you begin to ask yourself, what is the point? What is the point of all of this? My story. Well, when you see how all things are being pointing towards Christ, again, it points, gives you clarity within your own story. What's the purpose of working with all of these patients and pouring all of my emotions into them and all of my care into them, knowing I might help them for a little bit, but inevitably, they're gonna die. Maybe not now, but eventually. What's the point of all of that? Or why do I toil away week after week after week worrying about market share and, and trade-offs? Struggling just to make more money than I did last year, knowing I'm just going to pay taxes and give it all away to a building fund, right? 
Why do I do this? I got to slip it in there. (laughs) To all of these great questions, indeed to all of the questions that are worth being asked, you will not find an answer in this world. To be honest, if you can find an answer within this world or within your life, either you're settling for something that's pitiful, or you're not asking a question that's even worth being asked. But to all of the great questions of why I'm, why am I here? What's, what's the purpose of all of this? Why do I even try? What's the end to all of this? There's only one answer. See, there's a myriad of different settings and different stories and different questions and different longings within all of our hearts. But there is only one answer that will satisfy them all. And that is Christ and His glory. He's everywhere, you see. In the creation of the world, a creation of it all, there is Christ. In the fall, right before they're kicked out, that we'll talk about in a little bit, what is their hope? It is in Christ. In this exodus of Egypt, being pulled out of the land of bondage and slavery, through the sacrifice of another. Well, who's that pointing to? Well, that's pointing, of course, it's to Christ. And how do we come and approach God in His holiness while we are still in our flesh and sin? How do we do that? How do we come in to the presence of God? That's the book of Leviticus. How do you do it? Well, it's pointing, obviously, it's pointing to Christ. We have the conquest of the land, the promised land given them. Of course, it's through a conqueror named Yeshua. When we're living in the land and the prophets are calling us and bringing us the word of God... And pulling us and pulling us away from idolatry. Well, who's the true prophet? It's Christ. Of course, it's Christ. The word that the prophets speak, well, that's the word of the Christ. And the hope of the people is that God Himself will come and dwell with them. And they begin singing and singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Well, of course, this hope is fulfilled in Christ. This eternal Word who came in the flesh. John 1. It's Christ. Well, we, we just sang the song, Behold the Lamb of God who comes and takes away our sin. The last prophet, John the Baptist, who is proclaiming this when he sees whom? When he sees Christ. The one riding on the donkey as the crowds and the throngs of people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who are they ringing this out over? Well, it's Christ. Don't you see it? The one who raised the dead and brought the lame to walk and brought vision and sight to the blind. Well, that is Christ. The one who is racked up on the cross. And pierced in his hands and his feet. And pierced in his side. It was Christ. The one over whom the wrath of God was poured. While darkness covered the earth. It was Christ. The one who was raised from the dead that we too may have the eternal resurrection from the dead. 
I got, it's Christ. The one whose name is now proclaimed throughout all of the nations, well, it is Christ. There is no other name under heaven and earth by which men and women must be saved. Our faith, our hope, our trust can only be in one. And again, it is Christ. The one who is now interceding for us, his sheep, on our behalf to God the Father. It's Christ, the great high priest who will constantly throughout all of eternity be interceding for us. It is Christ. The one who is named faithful and true, who will come back riding on his white horse to finally defeat Satan and all of our enemies and put to death. Death itself. It is Christ. The true groom of the church. Us. His bride. With whom we will feast and rejoice forever and ever. It is Christ. And the one who we will worship. Not just on Sunday mornings. But the one whom we will worship throughout all of eternity. Crying out worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. My friends, I don't have to tell you once again. It is Christ. So this is our endeavor. Is to see how all of this, all of it, is pointing towards our Messiah. Jesus Christ. And my fear, to be honest, is that we never do it justice enough. That our eyes will wander away from His glory. And whether we're in feasting or famine or sorrow or joy or mourning or singing, the radiant glory of Christ, this is my fear, is that the radiant glory of Christ begins to dim as we turn our eyes away from Him and begin to ascribe His glory to the things of the earth. But it is our prayer that the grace of God will continually lift our eyes to behold the glory of Christ. So that being said, we'll finally make our transition to the text for this week. And it's perhaps the, the best known uh, portion of literature throughout all of history, throughout the whole world. These opening chapters of Genesis. And so what we're going to be going through here is, just in this week, I'm hoping to set up the framework here in which you're able to see the Bible and see your own story, consequently, not from your own vantage point, but in light of Christ. So we're going to be seeing here in the first portion there this imaging of God's glory, this creation, this imaging of God's glory, the corruption of that image, how Adam and Eve take the fruit and... Choose not God, but something else. And then finally, hope through the offspring. So let's go back to the text here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. Not surprisingly, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. And He, verse 5, God called the day, the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. We, what we see here is this brilliant 
display of what God is creating. And he could have done it in any way that he chose. Quite frankly, he did. But you get the impression that the first bit of this creation, the light, and then subsequently the rest, is a reflection of his glory. As God is living in this unapproachable, glorious, beaming light, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, eternally communing together, communing together in all of their glory. And it's as though this this glorious light just overflows then into creation. And we have our first portion of creation. And it's this symphony then begins to grow throughout the days of this creation. And it's like you have the, the violins are playing and then you see the light coming forth. And you have the timpanis in the back there and the, the water's coming, coming up. And then you have the violas joining in. You have dry, lound, dry, dry ground coming out. Then you have the cellos playing over here and then the trees begin to sway and the grass begins to sway and all playing to the glory of God. And then the trumpets come in in the back, you know, with the, the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars all playing together of this overflow of God's glory that is ascribing to Him, their Creator, all that He is due. So for some of you, this might be the first time you've read this. And for others of you, it's been the hundredth time you've read it. Uh, Don't lose the beauty of what's happening here. Uh, All other pagan account... I think you can still say the word, right, pagan, of of creation, is they, they don't have this. What they don't have is a, a creator, sovereign creator, who is over his creation and creates it for his glory. What you end up having is is, is two battles, and one, one God defeats another, and his body rots, and then out comes forth you know, some form of creation in which we now live, that the gods interact and begin to mess with humans. What you never have is Genesis 1. You don't have it anywhere else. This alone, I would contend, is enough to push aside all of the, all, all of the religions and point you towards the God of the Bible. So let's keep going here. And then verse 26. And God said, chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And He let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in His own image and in the image of God He created them, male and female. He created them. Here, finally, as if Moses has been teasing it up, you finally have this true origins of man. Adam is is one with creation. He's brought out of the dust of the ground, but yet he's, he's quite unique in and of himself. He's given life. Not from himself, but he's given the very breath of God. He is made in the image of God, which is, it shows itself in numerous ways. But one of the main ways that Adam displays his imaging of God that's impressed upon in him, that he is reflecting God here on earth, is that he has dominion. It's right there in the tied end of the text, is that he has dominion over all of creation. 
So Adam is, is pulled out of the ground of the dirt, of the dust of the ground and he's given life and Eve is pulled from his side and there they are to work together in the garden. And you see what they should be doing. The implication is that they should be working to work and to keep, to expand its edges. That this place, the place in the garden, what's beautiful here is that in the garden you have the overlap of heaven and earth is happening right there in the garden. The presence of God is with the presence of men. And they are to work and to keep and to expand this so that the kingdom of God can encompass the whole world. So then you get to verse 31. And God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And everything here is beautiful and quaint and tranquil. And there was, there was evening and morning. And you see this in day one. There was evening and there was morning. In day two, there was evening and morning. Day three, there was evening and morning. Day four, there's evening and morning. Day five, there's evening and morning. And then on day six, again, there's evening and morning. And then on day seven, of course, there's going to be... No. It's not there. As though the seventh day was to never end. It has no beginning, it has no ending. As though we are to understand that the ultimate end of all of this is eternal rest with God. But what happens? It's just a naked man and his naked wife in the garden. What could possibly go wrong? Well, go to the text. Much, much, much goes wrong here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. She added in, lest you die. In the, in the Hebrew, motumut, very emphatic, a death you will die. But the serpent said to the women, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good, she saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Negligently. And he ate. What I hope you see here is that their motivation is the same as our motivation. There's the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Side by side in the middle of the garden. In the midst of the garden. in In the middle of the garden. They're told not to eat of one, but there's a tree of life right there that they could eat from. And what do they do? Given the choice to be God themselves or to commune with God, what shall it be? Of course, they choose what we choose. We want to be like God. We want to be known. We want to be recognized. 
We want people to obey us. We want, we want to be served. We want to be understood. Well, what happens here then? Verse 7. Then their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And there, in that instant, everything that was pure became defiled and corrupted. And their nakedness became their shame. So rather, now, now what do you do, right? Okay. Now what do we do? Do you go running to God? Or do you go hide? Cover yourself and hide. Again, it's as though they doubled down on their original sin of not going to God and communing with Him. But they go, no, we can handle this. We can take care of it ourselves. We do this day after day. Don't you realize this? We can handle this. We can, I've, I can handle this. And they go off and they go, no, I can atone for this. I'm good. I'll make up for it. And they sow themselves some fig leaves as though... By covering their shame, they can remove the shame. But it doesn't work like that. You know it. So they act in themselves once again. We do the same thing. Sew together some fig leaves. Oh, I'll come to church. Even on daylight savings time when I missed an hour of sleep. Look at me. Look how religious I am. It's it's out there. No, God, I, I even sing the hymns. God, God, you will accept me then. And we hide behind our, our religiosity, don't we? And we think, well, as long as the standards aren't too good, I won't be found out. I can fool them. And if I try really hard, I might even be able to fool myself. And others of us, we, we cover it with drunkenness, or drugs, or work. Covering ourselves in hiding from God. But our corruption, I hope you see, is so vile that a fig leaf cannot possibly cover it up. A fig leaf cannot take it away. There's nothing that can purge us from our sins, but a sacrifice that will cover us and clothe us. And that only, that sacrifice can only be the sacrifice of another. So I pray. It is our prayer. And we, the elders. That when your eyes begin to open. To the sin that was in within you. That you won't run to religiosity. That you won't run to cover up your own sin. With fig leaves. Or that you won't even further hide from God but that you would look to another who can purge you clean and make you white. So before we move here to the final set of verses here, we see Adam and Eve are in quite a predicament, aren't they? It was created good, it was good, it was good, it was good, and then they eat of this fruit, and their hearts are corrupted, but it's not only... I see. I hope you see the, the level of corruption here. It's not just this one act, but all of their affections, their emotions, even all of creation is now groaning to be redeemed. Fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains are still awaiting now redemption. But there's hope. That's the beauty of the text, is that there's hope. It doesn't end here. But there is hope. 
Even when, when it seems the most desperate, even in our own lives, when it seems as those situations beyond our control, which it always is, and there's no hope whatsoever, no hope for our marriages, no hope in my job, no hope in my career, no hope with my children, there is hope because of this. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock. Chapter 3, verse 14. And above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15 that we're going to be looking at here. I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So Adam and Eve, you see what's going on here. Adam and Eve, they're, all they know is this garden. It probably hasn't been very long, but all they know is this garden. And they're, they're on the cusp of being thrown out. But they're given this glimmer of hope before they're going out. So then rather than flowing streams and, and abundant fruit, they will now be toiling among the thorns in the dry ground. It says, though, that the corruption within their hearts and the barrenness within their own hearts is now represented in the barrenness of the soil they will work. And at this time, they are given hope and a promise. A promise that an offspring of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And in this... So he's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And in this act, the serpent itself will strike the heel of the one who is crushing it. And in this glorious act of victory over the serpent, he himself will die. Psalmist David writes it this way. In Psalm 22, they have pierced my hands and my feet. That is our hope. Beloved, that is the hope of all creation. From Adam and Eve until the last man and last woman breathe their last breaths or see Christ coming back in all of His glory. That is all of our hope that it is in Christ. Not only Christ, but Christ crucified. So friends, look to Him. He is the hope of all the nations and He is the hope of you. Look to Him. That you might be saved. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we, ah, our hearts are so often just barren and dry and full of the, the wickedness and, and the curse of sin. God, we, we need hope. We need your Son to come and purge us and wash us clean, God. We need your Son to come and roll back the curse of this world that we see all around us. Broken families and abandoned children, God. And wars and famine, God. We long for the coming of your Son to roll back the curses of this world. But God... We come to you right now and we plead with you that you would roll back the sin in our own lives. That we would see how all things, even our own lives, are pointing 
to the glory of your Son. Pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.